liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe What's up, people? It's Clint Russell, the host of Liberty Lockdown, your friendly anarchist or whatever you want to call me. Uh, tonight, I am once again deep diving ESG. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but I, I've done a little bit more research into the history of it, where it stemmed from, and why it is taking over the world, and why it must be fought tooth and nail to the bitter end. Uh, before I get started with that, I wanted to uh, mention that I... I had a piece, a essay that was actually published in Keith Knight's latest book called The Voluntarist Handbook. And it's just a couple page essay that I wrote, uh, but very cool to see myself in a published book, like a physical book. I've never, never seen such a thing. So we live in strange times. Uh, he uh, He's the host of Don't Tread on Anyone podcast, if you want to check him out, uh, but definitely pick up that book. I, it was number one in anarchism on... Amazon. And I just think that's so cool. You know, I had Scott on last week. He had the number one book in, I think it was War and Peace. And now another good friend of mine and both work for the Libertarian Institute. So we're making waves out here, folks. It's it's very, very cool time to be involved. Uh, before I get started, I want to thank our sponsor, as always, careerhackers.com. If you are in a position of needing a new job, this is your starting point. Go to careerhackers.com, sign up for the Daily Job Hunt newsletter. It's free, costs you nothing. We'll give you some information on how to stand out in a crowd, how to interview better, how to do uh, video submissions, things of that nature, just really creative ideas to help you differentiate yourself from other applicants. And as you are certainly aware, the economy is a trembling. Now's the time. Go to careerhackers.com. Let's get into the show. Starting up, number one, I'm not going to go all ESG on you. I, I know that can probably be too daunting. So I'm going to bring in our friend, Michael Moore, who wrote a stellar article. The 28th Amendment, my proposal to repeal and replace the Second Amendment. And as I'm sure you would imagine, I'm going to agree with every single word of this. Here we go. Section one. The inalienable, the inalienable right of a free people to be kept safe from gun violence and the fear thereof must not be infringed. <laughs> I read this like a week ago, so I'm enjoying it all over again. Uh, the inalienable right of a free people to be kept safe from gun violence and the fear thereof must not be infringed. How unbelievably incredible is that sentence? The fear thereof must not be infringed. These people legitimately want to make f their own fear illegal. Can, can you see why socialists are never content? If they have just their, their own foibles, their own phobias are enough to strip every man, woman, and child of their own God-given rights. It's, it's really remarkable. He goes on, and shall be protected by the Congress and the states. This amendment thus repeals and replaces the Second Amendment. He continues, Section 2, 
Congress shall create a mandatory system of firearm registration and licensing for the following limited purposes. A. Licensed hunters of game. B. Licensed ranges for the sport of target shooting. I don't even know. Why Why would you even give us this? Like, obviously, you despise guns. And C. For the few who can demonstrate a special need for personal protection, a.k.a. Michael Moore and every other multimillionaire lefty will still have the right to defend themselves, but not you, good friend. All who seek a firearm will undergo a strict vetting process with a thorough background check, including the written and confidential approval of family members, spouses, and ex-spouses. <laughs> think, about how, think about how nuts that would be. You have to, if you want to get a gun, your ex-wife has to vouch. No, no potential for any problems there. Ask Johnny Depp about it. Ask him, ask him how that would work out. I mean, I'm one of the rare people that has ended all of my prior relationships on good terms. But even, even for me, I'd be like, yeah, no, I don't want them to have that power. Are you out of your fucking mind? And or partners and ex-partners. I love how he makes it gender neutral, you know. Uh, coworkers and neighbors. Oh, coworkers. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, I don't have any coworker that in the past that didn't dislike me that might. Oh, man. And neighbors, of course, because every one of my neighbors are sane. A mental health check will also be required. Oh, cool. So we're going to have the government instruct a doctor to judge whether or not our mental health is up to par to be able to defend ourselves. Hmm. Where could that go wrong? Oh, you're a libertarian? Mental health check failed. It's, uh, there will be a waiting period of one month to complete the full background check. Oh, okay. So if I'm under direct threat, I have to wait 30 days to try and defend myself. Section three, those who meet all the requirements for the restricted gun owners group and successfully pass the background check must take a firearm safety class and pass a written test on an annual basis. Section four, the minimum age for the restricted groups who can own a firearm is 25 years old. Renewal and review of the firearms license will occur on an annual basis. 25. So you can go and fight in the Middle East at 18. You can be an ROTC at like 17, maybe even 16. I'm not sure. But you can't defend yourself and your family until you're 25. I mean, so infantilizing. Embarrassing. Section 5, Congress will stipulate and continually update the limited list of approved firearms for civilian use, including weapons in the future that are not yet invented. <laughs> the following firearms are heretofore banned. All automatic and semi-automatic weapons and all devices which can enable a single-shot gun to fire automatically or semi-automatically. No semi-automatic weapons. Okay. That's pretty much anything I'd possibly want. Any weapon that can hold more than six bullets. <laughs> so he, he just wants us to have revolvers i guess uh or rounds at a time or any magazine that holds more than six bullets so you gotta you can get a six shooter that's about it all guns made of plastic or any homemade equipment and machinery or a 3d printer that can make a gun or weapon that can take a human life okay so basically he's banning everything including 3d guns which you can't stop the signal on good luck with that uh, section section six, Congress shall regulate all ammunition, capacity of ammunition, the storage of guns, gun locks, gun sights, body armor, and oh, body armor, good God, and the sale and distribution of such items. No weapons of any kind whose sole intention is the premeditated elimination of human life are considered legal. So basically, any weapon that you could actually use to fend off the government, mm, no, illegal. 
Congress may create future restrictions as this amendment specifically does not grant any American the right to own any weapon. Thank you for making that explicit, kind sir. I can't believe, I mean, so body armor. I mean, this is just, it's so next level that they want to strip you of even, like, say you don't have a gun, but you just want to have body armor because, say, you're, I don't know, a street reporter that goes into a protest and you want to be safe, illegal. And and what about the, the potential for the government regulating all ammunition? Do you think that they're going to limit their own capacity or utilization of said ammunition? Of course not. Why would they? But they're going to limit it to all of us. These people are so dangerous. Section 7, police who are trained and vetted to use firearms shall be subject to comprehensive and continuous monitoring and shall be dismissed if found to exhibit any racist or violent behavior. Got to include the racism in there. Uh, yeah, because, you know, that's the real problem with cops is the racism. It's uh, it's probably the violence towards minorities that you're most interested in, I would hope. Or are you just... Oh God, I don't, even, I don't even want to talk about this guy anymore. Section 8. Persons already owning any of the above banned firearms and who do not fall into the legal groups of restricted firearm owners will have one month from the ratification of the amendment to turn in their firearms for destruction by law enforcement. These local authorities may organize a gun buyback program to assist in this effort. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you, Michael. The above constitutional amendment was written by Michael Moore of Michigan and presented to the 117th United States Congress on July 11, 2022. Wow, that's interesting. The date changes because he published this like a week ago. That's fascinating that he wants it to. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, fuck you, Michael. I'm going to own whatever I want and you can cry about it. I mean, the uh, the hubris to write this even, really remarkable. I was going to say, isn't he Canadian? But I think he was actually born in Michigan, if I remember from his documentaries. Uh, neither here nor there. I hear your offers, demands, pleas, and I reject them wholeheartedly and without any consideration whatsoever. You will never, ever disarm the American people, Mr. Michael Moore. You piece of shit. So I've mentioned this once or twice on the show before, but I haven't gotten into any detail on it. Uh, SEL is called social emotional learning, and it's being rolled out in all of the public schools. And if you actually pair them together, SEL and ESG, social emotional learning, environmental, social, and governance, what you ultimately end up with is a social credit system. And this was written by Lisa Logan just nine hours ago. It's really, really good. So I wanted to break down some of it because uh, it gives me more of the history on SEL, which I am not as familiar with as I am with S uh, ESG. Uh, she says, granted, there are children that don't grow up in a stable environment, and SEL was originally brought into schools to deal with kids that needed specialized instruction in that area. That isn't the case any longer. State school boards at the direction of the Department of Education have decided that every kid needs support in that area, and they are teaching social-emotional learning as a school-wide intervention. This has been spurred on by states having to report back to the federal government on non-academic factors. So you're reporting stuff to the federal government that is not academic based. It's very important to notice that. Like the social and emotional health of their students, as if you can really measure that. Fascinating. In order to receive federal money, like is required by the Every Student Succeeds Act. So they're going to require that your kids' mental health 
and social health, whatever that means, is tabulated in some fashion and delivered to the federal government in order for them to receive their federal funding. Where could that create a problem, right? Except Castle's definition of social and emotional learning and their five core competencies made a seismic shift in 2020. Their new definition, transformative social and emotional learning, has SEL now centered around a racial and equity lens. CSEL, it's Castle, I'm just going to call it that for now. Leaders believe that racialized oppression was foundational to the establishment of the United States and have adopted the Marxist critical race theorist view that the U.S. is systemically racist. So you have this nice pairing where SEL has all of the, you know, aspects of CRT, critical race theory, and this information is delivered to the federal government, which we'll, we'll find out in a little bit, that is also going to be offered to employers. So ESG companies, corporations, can then be looking at basically the SEL findings from your child's education. Where could that create a problem? Think about it a little bit. As such, the new goal of SEL programs that align to Castle's standards is to groom students into thinking that the systems of society are intentionally built to be oppressive towards certain groups of people and that they need to become agents of change, which is extraordinarily Marxist. That's exactly what they always talk about. Social justice activists who want to overthrow those systems to make them more equitable. Marxism. SEL lessons like those found in the program Second step, manipulate the definitions of empathy and perspective taking in their K through five program to frame that being kind means you have to do something. So you can't, this is like the actively anti-racist argument, right? You can't just not be a racist. You have to do something, which later becomes choose a disruption strategy by eighth grade. So they want you to be a activist. They are programming your child to be a blue haired lefty activist nut. Literally, these disruption strategies encourage students to come up with concrete plans to advocate for causes related to race, gender, and sexuality, not oppression, not, you know, not like fighting the government that won't be included. I promise you that being that the assessments like the survey screeners conducted by Panorama Education also align to Castle standards. They are measuring compliance to and students adoption of these Marxist values attitudes and beliefs, which will be scored and collected as data that reflects their emotional intelligence. So they want to measure your child's emotional intelligence. The ramifications of this are frightening. Forbes notes that hiring decisions that used to be made based on schools attended grades and the status of their last employment are shifting to more intangible qualities like high, a high EQ, emotional intelligence. How will they be held accountable? Well, you guessed it, ESG. Not to mention that organizations like the Gates-funded Data Quality Campaign and Jeb Bush's Chiefs for Change are lobbying for linking student-level data between education and workforce agencies via the statewide longitudinal data system. They are asking Congress to lift the ban on a national student database, creating a federal student unit rec record by passing the College Transparency Act. So they want your kids programming to be recorded in a fashion that will be transferable not only to college for admission but also to potential future employers horrifying 
Don't forget that in 2021, Biden called for the formation of a new national credit reporting and scoring division inside the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that was rolled out after Dodd-Frank in 08. Uh, actually, I think it was headed up by Elizabeth Warren for a time. He wants to create a public credit reporting agency to compete with three major credit bureaus and maybe one day replace them all together. Hello, social credit score. So they want to replace, I forget the names of the three, but, uh, oh God, I can't remember. My brain's blanking. Anyways, you know, the three credit agencies, you get those three scores when you get your score. Well, he wants to replace them with one federal reporting agency, credit reporting agency, which will inevitably be tied to your child's EQ and then ultimately your own ESG score, which is without, you know, all the frills and laces, it's essentially just a social credit score. The Biden plan to build back better by advancing racial equity across the American economy proposal suggests that a government-run CRA could fix that's a credit reporting agency, could fix a credit reporting system that frequently holds consumers back from becoming homeowners due to problems like credit reporting errors and racial disparities. Hey, what has gone wrong in the past when we tried to find new ways for people that don't qualify for credit to go out and buy housing? Never created problems in the past, so don't worry about it. Social emotional learning in schools is fueled by human capital impact investments and will work in tandem with ESG requirements for businesses to create a compliant society. Students will be forced to either adopt the worldview offered to them through transformative SEL or be faced with the consequences in the social credit system to come. It must be rejected. Absolutely, it must. And I don't think it's overstating it. Like you can see the framework to the complete program, right? This is birth to death programming. And most tragically, it is programming from the earliest stages of life. And this is why as always, I will encourage you, if you have children, to get them out of public schools as soon as possible. This stuff is so toxic. People always, conservatives in particular, always wonder, you know, I raised them. I took them to church. How did this happen? This is how, okay? They spend seven, eight hours a day, whatever it is, in public school with these teachers. Many of them are woke nutcases themselves. I mean, the teachers. But on top of that, even for those that aren't, imagine what this means. It means that they will be forced, if they want to maintain their employment as a teacher, to do these EQ testing and curriculum that prepares them for these types of things. Terribly dangerous and seemingly inevitable. I mean, unless you get some hardcore conservative president in there that undoes all this stuff. And I don't think they will, because I don't think they understand it fully, unfortunately, because the way I feel about it is like, I, I realized that there was a marathon being ran about two years ago, but my competitors had actually taken off from the starting line, like 15 years ago. <laughs> and, and I'm on mile two and they're on mile 23 and I'm just desperately trying to catch up. That's how, that's how this SEL, ESG, all of it feels to me. And I'm sure many of you feel similarly. It's really daunting to wrap your head around. And, and what's fascinating about it is like, because I kind of dismissed, because I despised the ideas of socialism, I, I, dis, I dismissed almost entirely Karl Marx and Marxism. And I never really dug deep into 
the implementation phase, like how they actually were so, so successful. And what I'm finding now is that their tactics are very, very good. And I guess it's not that big of a surprise when you use government to implement your worldview. It's going to be hard to beat. But I just, I just didn't really understand how this stuff could kind of slowly seep into the system without anyone really noticing, especially without someone like me noticing. I think that's the thing that I know that makes me sound egotistical, but I'm just saying like, I, I pay attention. I'm, I'm always following the news and I'm always, uh, you know, I'm very skeptical of the government and what they're doing all the time. So I'm like, how did this, how did this sneak up on me? You know, how did this sneak up on the libertarians? We're supposed to be on top of this stuff. And I was just in Michigan, uh, gave, it was really cool. By the way, I got to meet Justin Amash. Great guy. Um, really just a supremely nice human being. So, so glad we got to meet each other. And I got to give my entire ESG presentation to a room filled with, I don't know, 60 or so people. It seemed like I, I could be wrong. Um, and not, I, I honestly don't believe that a single person in that room understood ESG in the way that I do to the, like the depths of the depravity that exists within it. Um, but what was really cool is that when I was done with the speech, I got off stage and I went over to, uh, Mr. Amash and I asked him about it and I said, Hey man, I would like to know if I'm overstating this. And, you know, he kind of gave me a little ribbing about kind of the, the doomsdaying about it, but he didn't, he didn't deny, you know, that I was highlighting something that was real. So I felt like that was good confirmation as to perhaps I'm on the right track. Cause sometimes I feel as if, God, can this really be true? Like, am I, am I really on the cutting edge of this insanely dystopic topic? It's, it's very hard for me to imagine, you know, cause I'm just some guy, but I really, I believe that ESG will be the story. Like just tonight, actually, I watched Tucker Carlson before I started doing all this reading and he did an entire 10 minute segment about ESG. That was the first time I've heard him talk about it. So I feel like for whatever reason, this, this mat, this topic is finally grabbing people's attention and I'm so grateful for it. And I'm so grateful that I get to play my micros microscopic role in trying to get people on board with what we're dealing with and what we're up against. Cause this is so, so daunting. It really, really is. Uh, so this is how the kids are being groomed. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what else to say. They're being groomed. I think I mentioned this on last week's show, but maybe not. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, Sri Lanka, small island nation off of the coast of India, collapsed. It, I mean, it didn't collapse into the water, but it uh, its economy collapsed. They are bankrupt, according to their minister or whatever his title is. Um, and guess guess why? You guessed it. ESG. Sri Lanka has been wrecked with poverty, inflation, and fuel shortages on a massive scale with the prime minister, yeah, prime minister, I was right, declaring Tuesday that the country has gone bankrupt, according to Business Insider. A ban on chemical fertilizers implemented in April 2021. I just want you to realize the reason I, I, I come with such urgency on this matter is because 
April 2021, and 15 months later, they're bankrupt. And full full revolution, storming of the prime minister's you know castle, <laughs> her mansion. It, this is very rapid. If you mess with the food supply, if you mess with the supply chain, if you mess with the currency of a country, yeah, big, big problems unfold very rapidly. And I believe that we are experiencing that already here. So this is why I, I constantly seem as if, you know, I'm pulling my hair out. This is why I'm bald is because it can happen very fast. I don't think like as, as resilient as the economy is, I'm telling you, if you stop planting crops, it's game over. And these plans, these ideas are popular enough that we have a real danger of it occurring in America in earnest. Not anything to be casual about. You know, you got to be very vigilant. Uh, according to Business Insider, a ban on chemical fertilizers implemented April 2021 in an effort to promote organic farming proved the final straw after a string of missteps decimating Sri Lanka's primary source of income and forcing it into bankruptcy, experts told the Daily Caller News Foundation. The government lifted the fertilizer ban in November 2021, but the damage had already been done. So think about that. April 2021 to November 2021 was the only time that they had a fertilizer ban. That is incredible. Six months. Six months, and they destroyed their economy. Wow. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs estimated in the report that crop production for the 2021-2022 season decreased by 40 to 50%. And so far, farmers have only utilized a quarter of the available land for the up upcoming season. My God. So a quarter of the available land. So this problem is here to stay. But because their crops had already dropped by 40, basically in half. They were just screwed. Environment Minister Mahinda Anawira declared a government initiative to save the earth from, quote, our own geoengineering misuse, greed, and selfishness, end quote, in 2020, ahead of a forum on having nitrogen waste, having as in cutting in half nitrogen waste. The move was part of Sri Lanka's effort to pursue environmental, social, and governance goals. The country signed onto a green finance taxonomy with the International Finance Corporation in May that included a commitment to organic fertilizers. So they were trying to get away from synthetic fertilizers into organic, and boom, they destroyed their entire fucking economy and their government. Inflation in Sri Lanka stood at 54.6% in June. 55 fucking percent, man. Crazy. According to Trading Economics, with food prices rising 80% and transportation 128% since May. My God. Half a million people have sunk into poverty as of early 2022, The Guardian reported. So yeah, bad. This is, this is what this insanity does. When you stop focusing on delivering what people need and you start forcing what you think they should be allowed to have. The International Monetary Fund visited Sri Lanka from June 20th to the 30th, ending with constructive and productive discussions on reforms and loans, including an extended fund facility arrangement to be worked out in detail over the coming weeks, according to a press release. Got to have the IMF you know, swoop in to save them, aka put them in debt forever. Sri Lanka has an almost perfect ESG score at 98.1. 
You hear that? A perfect ESG score means you starve and you revolt. I want you to really understand that's what's coming. Tied with Tajikistan, according to the data from World Economics. For comparison, Sweden sits at 96.1 and the United States is at 50.7. So we're doing terribly, aka we have food to eat. Just to show you that this type of stuff is happening in America as we speak, but not as severely as it happened in Sri Lanka and elsewhere. Uh, landowners in path of carbon pipeline challenge constitutionality of South Dakota law. An Iowa-based Iowa Iowa, Iowa Summit Carbon Solutions says its $4.5 billion project or pipeline project will help ethanol plants lower their carbon score. Now, why would you care about a carbon score? ESG, right? Okay. Just making sure we're all on the same page. The project aims to capture greenhouse gas emissions and pipe the CO2 to Western North Dakota for underground storage. But a lawyer is trying to keep Summit off the land owned by his clients. Summit Carbon Solutions is an Iowa-based company behind, uh, oh, we already read that, from ethanol plants in five states and pipe it to Western North Dakota for underground storage. The main trunk of the hazardous materials pipeline would angle through Eastern South Dakota with about 475 miles of pipeline in total. Letters to landowners dated June 4th, 2022, Summit references state law 213531, which gives entities seeking such a permit access to properties to survey it, even if the property owner has refused access. So this is the reason I wanted to bring it up to the libertarian audience is because they don't care about your property rights. You understand? They're not, they're, they're not worried. They're not worried about what you think about it. They have some, some law in the books, probably which cites the environment, of course, and they're trying to make it so that everybody has to go, go along. And if you don't, well, you end up in court. And in this case, Fortunately, many of the farm owners are taking these people to court. Just think about it for a second. Think about how fucking bonkers that is. That they are legitimately, they're piping carbon. Going to pipe it to bury it underground. And I'm the crazy one that, that goes, that seems dumb. What are we doing? Like, you can't come up with something better than that. Like, even if you think carbon's a terrible danger, you're going to just... You're going to pipe it like hundreds of miles to bury it underground for, for how long? Forever? These people are just weird, man. Really weird. And I tweeted out today that it's my thesis that the businesses that came out and said, we're going to, like, these are companies, these are big businesses that don't even offer maternity leave or paternity leave, you know, parental leave if you have a kid, but they are willing to pay for your time off and your travel and the cost of an abortion. Now, why? Well, anytime I ask a question about a business that doesn't make sense, my original thesis is going to be ESG. And wouldn't you know, 40 businesses high on woke ESG standards bankroll abortion travel scheme. ESGs provide a smokescreen for left-wing bigwigs and C-suites to force radical leftist politics on shareholders, according to former McDonald's CEO Edward Renzi. Utah State Treasurer Marla Oaks called ESG the greatest threat to our freedom in America today without question during an exclusive inter interview with MRC Business. Uh, at least 40 major corporations that have reportedly vowed to fund abortion-related travel expenses for employees following the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health Organization decision that overturned Roe. Disney, one of the most notorious left-wing companies utilizing ESGs, assured employees that it would provide them with abortion travel benefits in a statement 
obtained by CNBC and issued the same day as the Dobbs decision. So they were ready to fire. Footwear company Nike told MRC Business on June 28th that we cover travel and lodging expenses in situations where services, abortions, are not available close to home. Even DoorDash, a food delivery company, jumped into the preborn baby killing fight. <laughs> this is obviously a very biased article, but then they go on to list these 40 companies. And wouldn't you know, they're all big publicly traded behemoths. And I'm just telling you, this is this is why this stuff is, is happening so rapidly is because this is how you get funding. And if you don't, you don't get funding from the biggest money managers on earth. So what are you going to do? You're going to play ball unless you're going to be some radical activist organization, in which case you have to go through, you know, private capital raising, like truly private, not these, you know, money managed hedge fund behemoths. So I've told you guys repeatedly that ESG began in 2004, 2003, 2004, after Kofi Annan uh, got the UN on board with it. Well, I wanted to understand where the actual ESG terminology came from. So I did some additional research and this is a fascinating one. This is not some sort of negative piece. This is actually kind of written really positively about the people that created the idea. So you'll enjoy this. Title is the United Nations free thinkers who coined the term ESG and changed the world. James Gifford's life changed when he hopped aboard a flight from Sydney in 2003. The team he joined in Geneva framed the UN's principles for responsibility investment. That's PRI uh, created the concept of ESG and changed the world. Uh, instead of killing that time with leisure, he wrote, oh, this is James Gifford. Uh, while he was on the plane to go out there, he wrote the United Nations Environmental Program Finance Initiative. That's the UNEP-FI. I said, I would love to do an internship and that I had some ideas I'd like to contribute. They responded with a sure, fine with us. And so a few days later, he pitched up in Geneva and got to work as an unpaid intern. So the reason I wanted to include that part is because the, the very concept of lockdowns, as we've learned on my show in months past, like probably a year ago, came from a high school student with a science fair project. <laughs> this is a true story. So now ESG, the next greatest danger probably in history, is created by an intern. Just wanted to point that out. Gifford's suggested course of action echoed his past work with the Wilderness Society. He proposed creating a framework, a set of core principles that in time became the PRI. That's the Principles for Responsible uh, Investment, in which institutional investors could really engage with. He remembers, we were looking at ways to engage with pension funds. I said, why not develop a set of principles where we focus the ownership power of the world's largest pension funds on UN norms and principles? How can that not make sense? Well, how it cannot make sense is uh, socialism doesn't work. That's how, just so you know. From that day on, UNEP FI had a clear purpose. It would build a bridge between, on the one hand, freewheeling capital markets, and on the other, the corset-tight arena of multilaterals with its love of hierarchy and procedure. So, AKA, big money managers and the government working hand-in-hand. -hand. Genius. <clears throat> Over the next two years, the team walked a tightrope as it sought to convince everyone from global asset managers to senior UN leaders to back the plan. The first key, key moment came in June 2004 with the publication of two reports, one titled The Materiality of Social, Environmental, and Corporate Governance Issues uh, to Equity Pricing, and the other in rather snappier terms, Who Cares Wins? Good question. Who cares? I certainly don't. Actually, I do about this, unfortunately. Both lent heavily on willing private sector sources. Clements Hunt's team co-opted 10 sell-side brokers at banks, including ABN AMRO, Deutsche Bank, and Goldman Sachs, who were willing to work for a good cause for free. 
So just as I have theorized for the longest time, but never knew for a fact, I figured that the big, the big banks of the world had to be involved with the original implementation. And there we have it. ABN AMRO, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, all worked with him on drafting this from Jump Street. There we have it. The long-term aim was simple enough. Ethical investing had a glaring blind spot. Its believers, while our ardent, were a fraction of the whole. The team had to convince more institutional investors to embrace ESG until sustainability was mainstream. But it didn't. Three months later, on April 26th... Oh, this is... Sorry. I'm, I'm jumping around for those that are listening and not watching. Uh, three months later, on April 26th, UN Chief Anand rang the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. In doing so, he launched a global program that encourages fund managers to weigh the environmental and social impact of their investment decisions. It was staggeringly good. It was a staggeringly good piece of brand positioning. Most of the UNEP FI team were in New York that day, including Gifford, who dreamed up the PRA principles in a gray Geneva office. What well, must have seemed a lifetime ago? It was three years later. Come on, relax. As the old proverb has it, mighty oaks grow from little acorns. When Anon rang the bell that day, the PRA, PRI boasted 63 signatories overseeing assets worth 6.5 trillion. In 2021, the respective numbers are 3,826 signatories with $121 trillion in collective assets under management. So this is why when I always say there's at least 30 trillion in ESG, and I say some people estimate up to 50 trillion on the high side, I think it's probably higher because they have signatories that are espousing ESG rhetoric, whether or not they're actually following through, that are actively managing $121 trillion in collective assets. That is mind-blowing. Quote, there was a huge interest in climate change investment even after COVID hit, he observes. I thought investors' interest in non-health impact solutions would decline, but the opposite happened. People recognized the vulnerability of society and that helped the climate conversation. There has been far more interest in climate solutions post-COVID than before, end quote. Well, isn't that interesting? Because... I think some of these people were involved with COVID. Anyways, ESG is a journey we are all on together. If all goes well, we will never reach the destination as over time it will become integral to everything we do. I thought this was interesting too. The fight for respectability continued. Some roadblocks were internal. Kofi Annan championed a global compact on human rights, labor, and the environment in 1999. Even so, it took nearly a year of badgering to secure a type, a type letterhead bearing the UN Secretary General's name and title. With that in place, it was easier to get global asset managers to the table. Clements Hunt describes it as a trigger moment in the development of the PRI. He points to good work done by UN Global Compact founding director George Kell and Gavin Power, a former senior UN official and current head of sustainable development at PINCO. Both were instrumental in convincing a non to sign up. So there you go again. Another big money manager type folks that are uh, encouraging the UN to take this action. Also key to the process were Carlos Jolly, a Cambridge academic and advisor to Natixis Asset Management, again, a money manager, and Vincent Zeller, a former chief investment officer at Groupama Asset Management, another money manager. The pair chaired a working group that assiduously lobbied asset managers, convincing them to put their names to the PRA principles. So there you have it. Once again, demonstrating that Clint, just knowing about business and human tendencies, was able to theorize and guess correctly where this stuff actually originates because I just didn't believe for a second that it could have been the UN because this is too good. It's too good. It's too good for the for a government to really be the you know the brainchild. So my theory was that it was almost certainly going to be um, 
some very, very wealthy, powerful business people that really were the brainchild behind this. And I think that that piece demonstrated pretty, pretty obviously. One last piece for you before we get into the interview and the interview, you're not going to want to miss. I got a pilot, an active pilot to come on to tell me about why these airlines are absolutely melting down and so many canceled flights because I've been theorizing that it was the Vax mandates, but I wanted to make sure that I, I figured that it would probably be something more than that. So he gives us a ton of details. This is a tremendous piece that I just uh, got done reading by Dr. Michael, Michael Rechtenwald, who I've actually met before. The Woke Hegemony, the ESG Index and the Woke Cartels. Very long, so I'm just going to give you snippets of it. The term stakeholder capitalism itself may be traced to the inception of the World Economic Forum, founded by Klaus Schwab as the European Management Forum in 1971. In that same year, Schwab, an engineer and economist by training, published his first book, Modern Enterprise Management and Mechanical Engineering, in his native German tongue. Apparently, responding to Friedman's declaration of the previous year, Schwab introduced, because uh, Milton Friedman came out saying that businesses should not be doing social engineering. Of course, Klaus fires back a year later. And by the way, Klaus at the time is a young nobody. But regardless, he introduced the stakeholder model, arguing, as the WF website notes, quote, that the management of a modern enterprise must serve not only shareholders, but all stakeholders to achieve long-term growth and prosperity, end quote. Schwab and the WF have promoted uh, the stakeholder concept ever since. The stakeholder model is also the main organizing principle of the WF's Great Reset Project. There we go. 2019, BlackRock Inc. CEO Larry Fink led a U.S. business roundtable during which the CEOs from 181 major corporations redefined the common purpose of the corporation in terms of stakeholder capitalism. So there you go, 50 years later, and Klaus gets his wish. The biggest money manager on earth and 181 other major corporations sign on to this insanity known as stakeholder capitalism, signaling the supposed end to shareholder-driven capitalism. The investment approach at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, followed suit. In his 2021 letter to CEOs, Fink made his, fir his firm's position on investment decisions clear, declaring that climate risk is investment risk, and the creation of sustainable index investments has enabled a massive acceleration of capital towards companies better prepared to address climate risk. Fink promised a tectonic shift in investment behavior, an increasing acceleration of investments going to sustainability-focused companies, Fink warned CEOs, and because this will have such a dramatic impact on how capital is allocated, every management team and board will need to consider how this will impact their company's stock. Fink's letter also urged every company to provide a net zero plan. Net zero is exactly what crushed, crushed Sri Lanka. <coughs> Sri Lanka with its perfect ESG score, mind you. In thus throwing down the stakeholder gauntlet, Fink echoed the menacing words of Klaus Schwab. Quote, every country from the United States to China must participate, wrote Schwab in June 2020. Every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. So Fink is motherfucking quoting Klaus Schwab on the regular. And no one asks a question about it, right? All the top 10 asset management firms are on board with the ESG. Curiously, nine of the top 10 asset management companies are also WEF partners. So there you have it. Top 10, all of the top 10 asset management firms are on board with the ESG and nine of them are partners with the WEF. Let that one sink in for a minute. 
The WEF's list of ESG conscious companies is outstripped only by the United Nations Environmental Program, UNEP, Consortia of Investment, Banking, and Insurance Firms, all of which are aligned with the principles for responsible investment. So not ESG, but basically the same fucking thing. And or the subsidiary principles for responsible banking and principles for sustainable insurance. The six principles read as follows. Tell me where you've heard this before. Principle one, we will incorporate ESG issues into investment analysis and decision-making processes. So it's not ESG, but it's BRI, which is ESG. Principle two, we will be active owners and incorporate ESG issues into our ownership policies and practices. Principle three, we will seek appropriate disclosure on ESG issues by the entities in which we invest. Principle four, we will promote acceptance and implementation of the principles within the investment industry. Principle five, we will work together to enhance our effectiveness in implementing these principles. Principle six, we will each report on our activities and progress towards implementing the principles. So basically, uh, ESG one through six. Very, very cool. Over 4,700 asset investment management firms, asset owners, and service providers have signed on the UN's six principles for responsible investment. 4,700 asset investment management firms. Think about that. That is a ton. That's got to be more than half of all of them. Like any, any of them of reasonable size, I mean. The list of signatories to the principle reads like a who's who of financial companies and includes all the world's largest investment firms, including BlackRock, Vanguard, UBS, State Street, and other notorious ESG-aligned asset managers. BlackRock received Chinese approval for the first wholly-owned foreign asset management firm in the country. So Larry Fink, Mr. I'm going to save the world by cutting carbon, he has the only wholly foreign-owned asset management firm in China today. The only. Think about what kind of power that provides this man. And think about what type of a person he is. And think about how much of a fucking fraud he is that he wants to invest in China as their, I would imagine, the, the biggest polluter on earth. Scumbags. All of these people. Stakeholder capitalism represents the development of the Chinese system in the West, only in reverse. Whereas the Chinese political class began with the socialist political system and introduced privately held for-profit production later, the West began, began with a degree of capitalism and is now implementing a socialist political system. It's as if the Western oligarchy looked to the socialism on display in China and said, yes, we want it. This Chinese-style system includes vastly increased state or intervention in the economy on the one hand and the kind of authoritarian measures that the Chinese government uses to control the population on the other. Great stuff, Rechtenwald. Great stuff. I'm telling you, man. This is like... I'm so glad that so many brilliant people are finally getting involved in talking about it because I'm not, I can't do it on my own, man. I need, I need people to really, you know, with the academic credentials and the, uh, the media relationships and things like that to, to help spread the word on this stuff. And I know Rechtenwald's been, been around the block. I know James Lindsay's doing his damn thing. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, a handful of others, Glenn Beck, you know, we need all hands on deck. This is really, really big. And I know I, I make I basically say that every time I talk about ESG, but I, I just can't emphasize it enough. It is so enormous. And and what I was thinking about as I was reading these things, it really strikes me that this is a uh, it's it's offering collectivist ends in the sense that it's offering us, you know, 
collectivist solu- uh, solutions in the sense that we we will have no more pollution and things like that, no more poverty, no more racism. You know, just collectivist ends in that regard that it would help, it would benefit us all allegedly, right? But it's pretending to do so by foregoing collectivist means because it's saying these are private operators. You know, these are private capital managers that are making these decisions of their own accord. There's no force here. And I just wanted to emphasize that there's a lot of force here. It's coercion. But if you learned anything about the vaccine mandates over the past year, I think you could understand there isn't a hell of a lot of difference. You know, if you're, if you are a type of person that believes in your own bodily autonomy, well, you're forced to either take something you don't want or you're forced to go find a different job. So I guess because you're given an option, it's like holding a gun to your head and saying, you know, I don't even know where I'm going with that. It's just holding a gun to your head. <laughs> it basically is. It's just a metaphorical gun. Anyways, uh, I want to thank our other sponsor before we get into the interview. And that is Expat Money Show. Expat Money Show or Expat Money Summit. Uh, they're going to have a summit in a couple months here. And I'm going to give you a little hint. Give you a little hint. They are going to have a very special guest. It's Ron Paul. Don't tell anybody. Uh, Ron Paul is going to be speaking at the Expat Money Summit. That is huge. Uh, I'm so happy for him. Uh, Mikkel Thorpe's been on the show. If you're interested in learning more about becoming an expat, obviously you can go to the summit. That would be a great idea. Or you can check out his show. Either way, this is great information and something to just have as another tool in your pocket. If shit really hits the fan, you're going to want to know about this stuff. And once the shit hits the fan, you're not going to have time to learn. So it's it's important that you learn it in advance. Go to expatmoneyshow.com. Check out his YouTube. Check out the event. Uh, just basically get prepared. Anyways, the rest of this episode is going to be my interview with an airline pilot, an active pilot in America who was able to enlighten me a lot. And if I, if you guys remember, I was stuck in an airport basically for three days straight when I was trying to come back from what's it called pork fest. And, uh, it was brutal. So I was, obviously I had my own selfish desire to understand what the fuck's going on. Like why, why are so many flights being canceled like thousands and thousands every week for like a couple months now. So, uh, he's got some answers for you and you're going to be interested to find out before I start that interview. I just wanted to let you guys know, I will be at freedom fest in Las Vegas this Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, that's, uh, the 13th, I think through the 16th or so. And I'll be interviewing a bunch of big people. I'm trying to get Rand Paul I'm trying uh, Kennedy from, uh, Fox business, I think will come on the show. Um, who else? Who else? Oh, Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. How huge would that be? I'm, I'm emailing with his people trying to s- just squeeze some time. Cause obviously these people are in high demand, but if I can get those three, I will be happy. Um, so yeah, if you're going to be in Vegas, please come and say hi. Uh, myself and Reed Coverdale will have a booth there all week, and it's going to be a blast, I'm sure. Love you guys. Enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I had a very unfortunate experience flying. Uh, coming back from Porkfest, I was stuck in an airport for approximately three days, uh, was flown to New Jersey from Boston to New Jersey, back to Boston, and then finally made it back to Miami. It was hell on earth. Uh, I was tweeting about it, lamenting it publicly. 
And Gary of Talk Liberty was nice enough to reach out and say, hey, man, if you'd like to know what's fucked up about the airlines, I could probably tell you. Uh, so welcome aboard, Gary. Hey, thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure to be here. So I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Absolutely, man. I, I mean, I think this is an important topic. It, it's uh, I have my own theories as to what's going on. Uh, obviously, I've been laying some or you know, probably too much of the blame on the vaccine mandates. Uh, just because that's something that I found very appalling. And I assumed, because I know that there was certainly some guys that that left the industry over it, uh, that probably was enough to add to this, what appears to be a real significant shortage. So I'll shut up and let you tell us, uh, what's, what's your vantage point on this stuff? Okay, well, that's good. You're not wrong. But what I figured is I'll bring like a kind of a whole perspective to this and what's going on. So I was going to kind of peel back Perfect. the onion because it is very complex. So at any point, if you got any questions or anything, you can just tell me shut up. I, oh, I sound like Alex Jones. Just tell me shut up and I'll go there. <laughs> so and we'll get to the Alex Jones at the end. So I'm going to save that at the end. And I'll start with a little bit more of a background because it is, as I said, it's more complex. So I just want to give everybody kind of a fair assessment of like what actually is going on. So We'll start off. So 9-11 really completely destroyed the airline industry. Uh, when the people that I fly to or fly with that had flown before then, it was just, you know, it was like that movie, Catch Me If You Can. It was, every day was a vacation. You were, you know, you there wasn't as many rules. And I will say that, you know, the airline industry is probably three steps behind where you would call like the financial or these other crazy regulated or like the pharmaceutical. So it's like there is some capitalism there, but it's so regulated that it's sort of a hybrid where it's, you know, you run into situations like you just did for those those three days. Yeah. But um, I will say that after 9-11, they cut pay. I mean, pilots were making a lot of money. They cut pay. They cut work rules. They made it a lot less fun with the TSA and everything. So overall, the appeal to be a pilot just kind of fell off a cliff. And when that fell off a cliff, um, it created started creating a shortage of pilots. And you now you fast forward to 2008, that shortage was on the precipice of becoming very serious. Um, you know, pilots at the time had to retire at age 60. It was a mandatory retirement. There was no going over that. And right as that was about to happen, uh, Congress changed the rule just in time in the summer. I think I believe it was the summer of 2008. They changed it to 60 to 65. So now as pilots, they pushed that back. And that all of a sudden, all those retirements coming from World War II, and these people that, you know, had flew in the Air Force and the, you know, the armed services had happened. So when that happened, that and then the great, <clears throat> excuse me, the Great Recession happened, that combined all of a sudden put that pilot shortage on hold. They basically kicked the can down a little bit more. And once again, they tried cutting pay and everybody, they were like, okay, I'm done by this time. So Wait, well, hold on real, yeah, real quick. Yeah, so go ahead. If you're, if you're approaching a shortage and you know that, how are you simultaneously cutting pay? I mean, that normally you have a it's supply and demand, even when it, when it comes to employment, you don't have enough pilots. You normally have to increase pay, even if that means you increase, uh, you know, flight or ticket costs. It, it seems like that would be the natural answer to this to alleviate the shortage of, of pilots. So why does that not happen? Well, sure. So what happened was it was a double whammy. As I said, it was the Great Recession 2008. The economy just kind of fell off a cliff. We were approaching that. And then all those retirements that were going to happen instead of, like you said, raising the pay, they just went to Congress and said, hey, let's move the, the pay or the age increase up from 60 to 65. And now that bought them five more years um, along with an economy that was struggling. So that those combined, just they just basically kicked the can down the road. So as I was right. saying, it's it's, you know, pushing down what was inevitable as it was coming. It was coming down the pipeline. So this has been in the works for <clears throat> a super long time. Yeah, but what? But why? Why over the past five years? You know, you like you said, 
after 08, they kicked the can five years. We're 15 yeah. years past 08 now, so or almost. Uh, it seems to me like if you see this coming, if you're a CEO of an airline and you understand that these shortages are coming, uh, your job is to make sure you can still meet customer demand. Uh, they can't meet customer demand. Customer demand. It doesn't. It doesn't add up to me that you wouldn't have increased wages and increased ticket prices. I know it's a competitive environment, and but like, it seems like all of them would be increasing the ticket price to be able to pay their pilots enough to get enough pilots. It, right. What am I missing? <laughs> no, no. You know, you're not. You're not wrong. And as I said, it's it comes in the waves. The problem is, is that pilots take so long to train. It's not like this something where it's just a you know tomorrow you could do a two week course and you're done. Course, I mean, you're talking yeah. you're talking years, and it's it's one of the few advantages we have for negotiation. But to answer your question, the 2013 2014, you did see that tick start coming back up, and pilot pay did okay. increase tremendously. Okay. So it was there, but it's still. You know, they had seen it's kind of fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you, where they people had seen it. And, you know, a lot of pilots, you know, have people in the family and they would just say, hey, don't come to this industry. Stay out of here. I don't mm -hmm. care if they bring the prices back up. They're going to just crash it again. I mean, there's an old joke in the airline that says, how do you make a billion or how do you make a million dollars in the airline industry? It's you invest a, a billion dollars in right, the airline. Right. So it's, you know, it some of the, this, you know, I'm not going to say too much about, you know, airline management, but uh, let's just say it's it can be basically incompetent and and we'll we'll leave it at this you work for one of the major airlines we're not going to say anything beyond that but sure i just want people to understand that you're speaking from experience with all this stuff um so go ahead and tell me more of the the story here yeah so anyways as this came to fruition of course when the exact same thing we we're getting better pay we're getting better work rules we're getting everything all of a sudden march 2020 happens and we have demand fall off not seen since even worse than 9 11. So the airline decided, hey, typically from history it's ever shown, when demand drops that far, it takes a long time to recover. So what they did is did early retirement. So they offered the guys that were really close to retiring anyways. They just said, hey, just take this buyout. You'll be done. Get out because they don't think they're going to need them. All of a sudden, the demand turned back around. Those guys retired. And now we're stuck with, you know, they're just, they can't get pilots fast enough. You literally have airlines now shutting down. There was a, a regional airline called Great Lakes. We, we called it Great Mistakes in the, in the airline industry, but they flew uh, puddle jumpers. They could not survive. There was just not enough pilots. The, the demand, like you said, the, the competitive wages weren't there. And uh, that, that was it. You still got me there? Yeah, your your connection okay. cut out for a second. Okay, yeah. So, uh, anyways, to say that it's been very, uh, um, you know, it's been a long, rough road for pilots, to say the least. So, uh, now we can get a little bit more into um, what kind of happens here, and you can just stop me again if you have any questions. Um, sure. Okay, so they tried to force the vaccines down our throats as you know and at first they tried to say okay well it's no big deal um we're gonna you know it was gonna be a choice and then of course with the biden administration doing that uh, federal mandate they tried to push us there so i guess if you were to uh sum that up um the vaccines pushing that you see it just it's so funny it gets me uh upset just thinking about it because i remember them trying to tell me that yes you're gonna have to decide between your job or taking the shot and, uh, and there was so many there was such an uprising that i i was honestly shocked because i i was somebody that felt like i was the only one that uh, you know mm. like okay this is i'm just the crazy libertarian pilot and nobody else cares everybody's just going to take the the vaccine and that's going to be the end of it um 
but I guess if you're going to try and, uh, you know, tie this all in, um, so a lot of people were fired. So for example, one airline, and I won't mention who it was, they actually went ahead and fired um, pilots in here in the United States. Now, of course, over in Europe, this was, you know, Air Canada, we're talking Air Canada, Qantas, that wasn't even a question. You didn't take this vaccine right then and there when they were talking about it, you had like a certain deadline, you were fired and done. So there was other, so they were, they were here... more lenient in America, but there was, there was, so there was only one airline in America that actually fired pilots for not getting it. Uh, as far as I know, the other ones, they placed them on leave and they kind oh. of had said, um, you know, or you can, you know, they allowed for the religious or medical exemptions, Got it. but, okay. um, so, so yeah. So do you have a, do you um, have a number on how many, uh, how many pilots were actually fired in America? Um, I don't be simply because of, um, simply because they don't release that data. I know there were yeah. some pilots at one airline that I knew actually knew of somebody. There's a whole, like uh, half the people in the class, they were a new hire class and they got fired for um, turning in fake vax cards. I don't know how they got caught, but uh, yeah. Wow. So yeah. So anyways, they're doing all this while the demand is kind of picking back up. So they're at the same time, the demand's going up and the supply of pilots was already struggling. And now they're forcing you know people out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, not kind of a recipe for disaster. Um, so you you have the the basically the uh, consumer demand dries up uh, during the lockdowns. Then the lockdowns end, consumer demand spikes right back to what it was prior, if not even higher. Potentially, uh, you have all these these older pilots that have been forced into retirement. Then you also have some X amount of pilots that have been fired, or or perhaps retired early, or perhaps just retired or resigned over the vaccine mandates. Uh, I'm sure there was some of that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you add all this up and it seems to make sense as to why there would be a shortage of pilots. Is there any any other factors to include? Oh yeah, absolutely. So what we'll do is also, there's a lot of pilots that I know that were legitimately, because if you were out on medical leave, for example, so pilots, one thing that they don't understand, uh, what most people don't understand about pilots is you have to have a medical every six months. If you're over 35, you have to have an EKG. So you have to have your heart and your rhythm, all that things checked. So pilots are very concerned about their health. And a lot of these people, you know, it's so crazy to think about if, you know, if you're working construction, right, and you can say I'm sick, you can get away with that for so long. It is in the FAARs and in the company policy. If you are sick as a pilot, you are not allowed to fly. If you're mm -hmm. under, there are so many things that will disqualify you. If you start, your doctor prescribes you Adderall, oh, you're grounded, you can't go fly. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. million things that can stop you know, you from being a pilot, especially when it comes to your, you know, medical issues. Well, so, what, is, what does the EKG have to show to get you grounded? Because like I, I have an irregular heartbeat. I've had it forever. Would that disqualify me from being a pilot? Most likely. I don't know. I just actually just turned 35. So I've never, this will be my first one coming okay. up. So I've never, okay. I've never had to, to do it. But I, I know that if there's any, you're, you're, uh, you're really, no, Jesus can't talk, but you know irregular. what I mean? If there's a, yeah, yeah. irregular, if you can't get it, then it's going to, um, it most likely would disqualify you, but they're, they're strict. I mean, they don't allow a lot of things going on. So I knew some pilots that were legitimately had anxiety just from the thought of having to take one of these experimental jabs and anxiety is a self grounding, um, you know, is a self grounding, like medical disqualification. So you can say, I am, I have anxiety. Your doctor verifies that you write that you're out and you're not flying anymore. So I knew wow. there were some pilots that kind of said, Hey, you know, cause nobody can get inside of your head and really prove, you know, if you have, you know, what is going on. 
So I know Putz had just said, hey, I'm out. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines here until this all blows over. And sure enough, looked like a good good decision for them. So you have pilots that went out that way. Um, you have other pilots that now, uh, what's crazy to me is you have pilots that basically they claim their immune system has been hit since taking this vaccine. So remember this, as I said, again, this isn't like going to a doctor's office and, you know, being a receptionist and, you know, you have a little cold, you can sit there and, and, and still work. If you're sick, you, it's illegal for you to fly. Right. So now you have these jabs dropping people's immune system, at least from what I've heard. And then you have, um, and then you have the ones that aren't, you know, that weren't vaccinated that were got fired or at least put on administrative leave. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you see what I'm starting to get at, but it's it's starting to add up to, um, you know, to both of these things. Starting to add up to a shortage. Yeah. Um, yeah. So have they have they allowed the people that took that were I mean, have they have they gone crawling back to the people that were fired and said, <laughs> hey, we really, really need you. Um, has uh, also has the has the federal requirement been lifted? I, am I right in that or no? Um, yeah, the um, it, it has been, but sort of. So Biden went back and fought it against. So now it was just see. So the airline I flew for, it's like three percent. I don't three percent. I want to say um, are is like of our is federal contracts for flying for federal things. So they tried to say that we were a federal contractor, and we fought that and said no, absolutely not. But I, I just want to say there was such a huge uprising when it came to the vaccine and the mandates. Everybody, you know, was calling us on, you know, there's we have Facebook uh, pages in our pilot groups and there's people saying, oh, you Trump supporter, you white supremacist. I wish you could have seen, Clint, I wish you could have seen the the Zoom call when we had, we organized our own basically group and our nonprofit to fight these vaccine mandates. You can actually follow them on Twitter. They're called U.S. Freedom Flyers. But we had yeah, a yeah. thousand people on this Zoom call. And, you know, there's people of all backgrounds, different people. And this wasn't just like, you know, as you know, this wasn't just a, oh, I'm a, you know, a Trump supporter anti-vaccine. This came all the way across the spectrum. There was people all over that said, I can't do this. Um, Another thing I want to mention that I think this was the craziest thing, and I was texting Eric July this when this was going on, but people don't know this. This whole time you had that vax, or I'm sorry, the mask mandate on the plane, and you had to wear that mask, and people were getting fined and barred and put on the no-fly list. Pilots were not wearing that mask up there in that cockpit. And I'm saying, and I mean like 98, 99%, there was no mask going on up there. And it, well, it, it's good not for like you guys. Secret. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I was, you know, and I obviously I'm happy about that, but I feel bad for the people in the back. It's so hypocritical that it's like, I'm up here, you know, that, that restricts, you know, granted, like you can make arguments like that restricts my speech or something that, you know, my ability to communicate. But there, there wasn't even an attempt by the FAA or the, you know, anybody, I think it was the TSA that had that, the mask rule in place, but there was no attempt to say, to justify, and everybody knew about it. And I even asked one of our union reps about it. And he just said, it was, you know, it was just public perception. That's the only reason why you guys are, why, I was like, why do I have to wear it in the terminal? But I ha- I can take it off there for five hours. Yeah. And, you know, I had, I heard justification about, oh, well, we, there's a different pack up there that's pressurizing our, you know, because we do have different packs in the, you know, the aircraft. It's like, oh, there's a different pack up there that's pressurizing. It's different filtered air. And it, the whole thing is nonsense. I mean, that, that, that whole airplane, when you're in the air, that air is recirculated in about every three minutes. Oh, I know. So I, I know. I mean, there, there would have been, there'd be huge outbreaks right now if it weren't the case, because obviously COVID's still a thing and that the vast majority of passengers are not wearing the mask anymore. And, yeah, it has. We haven't seen it, so it's uh, it has already disproven itself, uh, you know, empirically. Uh, it's very. I mean, but I'll tell you, it was hell 
as a passenger, it was absolutely hell because I, I have to fly sometimes. And that was basically the only time in my life I would wear a mask because I moved from California to Florida so that I wouldn't have to wear a mask. Sure. And then whenever yeah. I would fly, I'd have to wear this damn thing for three, four, five hours straight. And I was just like, I just re remembered my experience being in you know California in the first year of lockdowns. And it was like, man, I can't believe that like blue states are still doing this. You know, uh, obviously stewardesses, you know, God bless them, uh, or flight attendants or whatever they're supposed to be called today. Uh, you know, the fact that they were, they were all forced to wear it too. Um, man, talk about, talk about not a fun job. And, and you have all these customers that are furious because they're suffering right along with them. So they're being rude as hell to the flight attendants. It's just like, what a, what a recipe for a shit show. Well, part of the reason why exactly, and part of the reason why that got you know overturned is because they always say you know uh, politics is downstream of culture. People were starting to get fed up, and that wasn't just a that wasn't just like a Republican Democrat. Oh, you're no. Trump. It, people were getting over it, and by the end, before the mask mandate was lifted, I, I'm saying like three to four months. You started looking around. I I knew captains. They're like, hey, I've been here 30 years. You want to fire me? I was like, I'm not wearing a mask. He walked through TSA with no mask, <laughs> and they kind of started a lot of the you know I don't know if you remember about the Southwest what happened with yeah. the pilots um go ahead, go ahead you know, and remind we, people though oh it's just they they started to talk about the the federal the vaccine the mandate and the southwest right. pilots basically you know southwest i want to say i mean i'm just making up a number here but i, I would venture to guess like 70 percent military former military pilots and these guys had it and they you know they basically <laughs> You know, people don't understand how much control and leverage we have. And, you know, as I said, just by not being able to call out sick, but, you know, making that connecting flight. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of scatterbrained here, but just as I was going to say, I took some notes just to make sure I wouldn't forget anything. Another reason why you guys are, you know, experiencing delays and things, for example, I, since I am not vaccinated, I'll go on record and say that I'm not vaccinated. I cannot fly to Canada right now. And the aircraft I fly normally goes to Canada. And people don't understand how interchange flights work. Sometimes, uh, you know, a plane comes from Hawaii to LA and then from LA, they're gonna swap crew. And all of a sudden, let's say I need to do a Vancouver or a Toronto round trip. I have to get pulled off that trip and they gotta find somebody else to do that. And so, you know, same way I can't go to Columbia. Columbia just passed a vaccine mandate to get into the country. I don't know how long ago that was, but now I can't go to Columbia right now. Unreal. So they're they're scrambling around trying to figure out how are they gonna you know make these flights happen so that's another reason why a lot of these delays is you know it's government forcing you know saying hey i can't enter the country so even though you know let's not forget that trudeau's caught COVID the bunch and you know all these people that are getting vaccinated are the ones that are you know catching COVID. but whatever you know yeah Fa fauci's got fauci's got it four times and he's now had COVID. <laughs> Uh, and then he took uh, Rendisavir and and then had his case flare up after taking the alleged cure. So, I mean, it's just all so transparently inefficacious. It isn't fucking working. And yet these yes. people who were, you know, basically responsible for dictating the policies that led to the mandates, they don't even reflect on it. It's always, you know, thank yep. God for the thank God for my vaccine. Thank God for you know, it would have been so much worse. It's like, yeah, maybe or maybe not. Maybe, maybe you yeah. wouldn't have even gotten yeah. it had you got it. So it's very frustrating. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the pilots that that claim to have health ailments from actually having received it. Do you think that that's true, or or are some of them bullshitting to get out of work? No, I absolutely do believe it's true. And this is, um, you know, I was just watching another interview with uh, somebody that was on Steve Bannon's War Room, but they're talking about over in Europe because. You know, I, I'd say right now, at, at least at my airline, I'd say it's about 30% not vaxxed, 70% vaxxed. And um, there was a captain 
that I've personally met myself. He's been, he went on record, his name's Bob Snow and you can look, uh, look him up, but he did a video, he's in the hospital and he got a cardiac, or went into cardiac arrest just after he landed. He got to the gate, it was maybe five, 10 minutes after he was at the gate that he went into cardiac arrest. And he firmly plants that. He said, I took the vaccine under duress. I was going to teach my daughter how to fly. He's like, I'll probably never fly again. And he pulls up his gown and he sees all these heart monitors and these things on it. So absolutely. And there's some um, studies, and I think I tagged you on it on a Substack article, but they kind of went through and they show that they track pilot deaths. And the most interesting thing that's going on right now is there's not, they haven't really noticed an increase in deaths, but what they've noticed is that the average age of these pilot deaths has suddenly drop down right 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 and, and and they're showing from based on their stat and their data and statistics that show you're looking about a a 40 a 40 percent increase in early deaths which would match up with these insurance companies and that is exactly what they're talking about but you know it, it's hard to say because you can't you, you bring it up and people get so angry for even suggesting that the vaccine could cause this you could say it's the, you know it's climate change it's a solar flare it's you know you stand up you're laughing too hard you can have a heart attack but sure suddenly suddenly you know when you mention that this role of this vaccine you see the spike people get so angry so uh, yeah well i mean it, it's like we're not even making a declaratory statement we're not saying like yes this led to this we're just saying hey the correlation's there it's worth asking the question like maybe i don't know um yeah. it's very very frustrating to me that you know the fact that i i may get this this episode nuke from youtube just because you you mentioned <laughs> it it's like it's it's absurd uh you know we're yeah. like i said we're 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 looking for the truth we're not even trying yeah. to, like this there's no fucking narrative here like i'm trying to figure out what's going on i had a hellacious experience on the airlines i know there's been thousands of people stranded in airports sleeping yeah. on the floor for a couple, like a week, uh, all last week, it was just atrocious. Um, so I guess that leads me perfectly into my next question. Is this capable of being remedied? Or are we looking at an extended period, perhaps years of shortages? Yeah, you know, I wish I could answer that question, but you know, to channel my full Alex Jones, I start to feel like that everything that's going on is being done on purpose intentionally. Mm -hmm. And so I think if they're intentionally trying to create food shortages, chaos, I think that if they're, this could be part of this plan to intentionally wow. wreck everything. So I don't, it's the I only had, way I hadn't even considered that. That's wild. Yeah. It's unfortunate, Clint. Cause I, 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 there, I don't take say that statement lightly, but from my angle, it seems like it, 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 I can't chalk it up to incompetence. It looks to me like somebody out there is, I mean, how do you not know with this vaccine mandate that this was, was going to be the results and some of these things that they've been doing? Well, see, that's the thing that really mystifies me about it, that you said you said it was, what, 70% have, have gotten the jab? Uh, roughly. That's at least from the stats I've seen um, sure. from my airline, yeah. Well, the, the, reason, the reason that surprises me is, you know, like you said, these pilots, like their whole their whole well-being, their whole income yep. stream is predicated on their health. And, and it, Absolutely. It's, it's very surprising to me that 70% of them, I mean, granted, it was under duress. It was coercion, sure. yeah. you know, 101. So I'm not, I'm not like blaming them. I'm just saying yeah. it's surprising that it was not more that just said, look, I've, I'm, I'm hearing reports of XYZ and I'm not going to risk that. Right. If you guys want to fire me, so be it. I'll wait until you need me again. Because as you said, it's it's not like you guys didn't know that you were vitally necessary. And is, if right. you got enough people, I mean, you see, uh, I don't remember which airline it was, but I saw Delta or something like that was was protesting. Uh, the pilots were marching, demanding better wages just yep. yesterday. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys, you guys have a strong union. You obviously come together when you need to. It's weird that it didn't happen in mass for the vaccine mandate. Do you know why it didn't? 
Yeah, or did it, and I didn't notice it. Well, it sort of did. It happened, you know, we, we hired one of the best attorneys and I'm trying to remember one of the famous cases he represented. And now I can't remember, but part of the group that I donated to is they, they suddenly came around and this lawyer was an older one. He goes, but I have never seen the type of outrage and the uprising for this. So, you know, really? it was about 40% vaccinated until they did the duress and they got about another 30% and they crossed over that middle. And so a lot of guys, they think, you know, that, you know, I totally get it as, you know, somebody in their situation, you know, I'm not going to judge because everybody's situation is different, but you know, let's say they got 10, 10 years to go till retirement. Pilots are not like a job. You can just kind of jump laterally across and keep the same type of executive, you know, right. the experience you have. If you leave your airline, you start over, you start at the bottom, you're taking a 70, 80% pay cut. You're going back to reserve. You're it's, it's kind of a ridiculous situation. So longevity and seniority is everything in the airline. So they kind of, they have you from that situation. Yeah, it's a lot of times CEOs can jump from you know top to top. That's not right. how it works with pilot. If you leave your airline, you start over at the bottom. Well, that, that seems like a problem in its own right. I mean, they if they want to get pilots, like if this was a truly competitive market, which obviously it isn't because there's government bailouts and regulations yeah. and all this shit, but it just seems like if it was a truly competitive market, well, then if you were running short on pilots, you'd be like, yeah, we're going to poach from you know, Delta right. or American or whatever. Yeah. If I was Southwest, I'd be like, I'm going to pay them exactly what they're getting, maybe even a pay bump and give them the seniority that they had with the prior airline. Why don't they do that? Is it illegal or have they all colluded to say, oh, we're not going to offer this? Because I don't know. Uh, yeah. Unions got control of all that. And that's the main okay. thing. If the unions are so big on that. But what, to be fair, you are starting to see stuff that I had never thought I'd see in my life. There is a regional airline because oh, most pilots start small. They start in a, start in a small plane. Then they move to a, typically like a regional and they fly smaller jets. That's what I did. And you, you fly there and then you move your way up. Well, they were losing so many of the regionals because they can't, the, all those pilots are just jumping because they got offers, you know, Spirit, Frontier, JetBlue, you know, you name it, they're leaving. They literally came in and paid those smaller airline. They gave them such a good contract that they're now paid more than some of the mainline, the pilots that like work their due. So you're starting to see like the dynamic shift a little bit, I guess, if that makes sense, because yeah, they, they're, yeah. they're desperate. They have no options right now. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, th that's how the market works. Like if you, yeah. if you need, if you need more pilots, you've got to pay better. That's, it's not going to happen otherwise. Um, well, I, I don't know. God, this is scary, man. I, I think one thing to really highlight for people is like, if you have a shortage of pilots, your economy basically comes to a, a, a standstill. Like flying is very important. There's not just, you know, for the business people that are traveling all over the world to do business, um, but also, you know, freighters and, and trying to get goods all over the, the world yeah. uh, that it has to, I, I would think that that would contribute to the supply chain issues that we've had. If you, if you're struggling that hard to get pilots, you're probably having some freighter pilots that aren't getting delivered on time too. Is that I know that's not your arena, but am I fair to assume that's probably true? Yeah, you you are. I mean, it's good. And again, this goes back to why I think that they're doing this on purpose. They're trying to raise prices. They're trying to squeeze people out and make things more expensive and make things more difficult. But I mean, I know right now I just saw uh, a, a, like a brief memo of FedEx's new contract and it's outrageous. I mean, you're talking $450 an hour for captains. I mean, it's, it's insane. So, but some of the other cargo carriers, they are shedding, losing pilots. I know some are just folding altogether. So those ones where you had pilots because the, the typical route was you pay your dues and you move up. So those guys paying the dues, that was affording, you know, you guys cheap flights, cheap packages. Cause there's a lot of stuff, you know, you, you don't see out there where you're talking like Cessna 208 caravans that are flying for FedEx that just, you know, going from Denver to a small city 
And now you don't have, a, you can't even find a pilot to do that. So then what are they going to do? They have to, you know, figure out another way. So uh, it's hard to say. It, it's a lot of it is incompetence, I would say, but a lot of it is these, you know, these, it, I can't say other than it looks intentional. But then again, yeah. that's just my opinion. I, I could be, I could be wrong. No, of course. I, I mean, it, it could be great reset stuff, or it could just be that the airlines are a bureaucratic mess because they've been so deeply involved with, you know, the regulatory and the governmental bureaucracy for my entire life. Uh, I don't know which it is. Um, wow. This is scary stuff, yeah. man. So, so <laughs> do you yeah. think, uh, oh, uh, I, I wanted to ask you actually, there was, sure. uh, when I was in my multi-day stay in the airport, I went yeah. outside because uh, I had so many hours just to kill in a layover, and I saw a stewardess, uh, excuse me, flight attendant, standing outside. Either way, <laughs> fine. fine. You're good. <laughs> yeah, she was standing outside, and and I and I walked up to her, and I was like, "Hey, I've been stuck here for like two days. Uh, could you give me the real deal? Because obviously, no one inside at the you know booth is going to tell me what's actually going sure. on. And and according to her, it had nothing to do with the vaccine mandate. That's what she said. She said it's all about the fact that new pilots were being offered uh, like $600 an hour uh, gigs and and the older pilots were getting no raises whatsoever. So you had older pilots that were basically saying, fuck you, I'm not going to fly. And and the new pilots were getting paid enormous amounts of money. Is that is is there any truth to that? Because that seemed that's just seemed bizarre to me. Like why if you have if you have new pilots coming in, getting paid double what the, what a, a veteran pilot is getting paid. That's a recipe for just complete uh, discord within your employment ranks. That's your, it's, so it's sort of the $600. I don't know where that number came <laughs> from. That's pretty outrageous, but you're not far off because that's not, that's actually correct. So as I said, you, I paid my dues. And so when you pay your dues, then, you know, I, I spent 10 years at a regional airline flying small jets, getting paid my first year, Clint, I made $19,000 flying my first year. But at the time, mm. you know, it, you know, at the time there was pilots that were, you know, I just had a different airline flying a different aircraft, but essentially doing the same job, making, you know, 200,000, 250,000. But that's just how it went. You worked your way in, you, you sure. paid your dues and you go up. So, yeah, we paid our dues. And now to stem the bleeding because they can't even figure out, you know, how to get enough pilots, they did offer just an outrageous, I don't know which airline you're flying, but I, what, they just offered an outrageous amount to some of these junior pilots. So, Another thing that happens is we have reserves and we have, um, you know, open time. So a lot of times pilots, you know, they say, hey, you pick up some open time, you get time and a half. And so we'll, you know, they, they volunteer and that helps ease the schedule. But you're right. What she said is when you look back and you said, hey, wait a minute, you're going to pay this junior guy more than me, even though I've been here 20 years or X amount of years. They say, you know what, maybe I'm not calling in sick or maybe I'm not, uh, you know, going to do anything crazy. But you know what, I'm just not going to pick up any open time. So I'm going to sit here and allow oh, exactly. you guys to struggle. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's what I would do at a minimum. I'd be furious. Yeah. I'd yeah. be absolutely furious. And and that's what we were waiting for, by the way. Uh, my my flight was delayed because they were waiting for, they needed a co-pilot and they couldn't find yeah. one. And they yeah. had to, you know, so they probably had to offer that guy double pay or something to get him in there. And and he could have been one of the, or, or you know, he could have been one of those pilots that, that was a veteran who's just like, I'm not going to do this unless you guys give me crazy pay because I've got 200 furious passengers sitting here waiting to get home and you know you kind of have them over the barrel at that point it's very frustrating man i, I don't i don't understand how i mean if if not for government um you know uh, regulations that that make entry like new competitors entering this field not to mention the immense amount of capital it requires to become a competitor oh, yeah. in the airline industry it's, yeah. it's enormous um but if not for these things 
Like it seems as if these businesses would be no more. Like the, like the, the way they run their operations is like over the past month in particular, like these are the types of businesses that ought to not exist. Like honestly, mm-hmm. and, and we need airlines. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't yeah. want pilots or I don't want sure. an airline. It's sure. just like, like if you're going to treat customers like this, I don't understand why you sh- like, why should I want you to exist? Like I'm, I'm like, go bankrupt. Fuck you guys. You're <laughs> killing me. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. No, it's just, I, I, don't, it's just I, don't, crazy. I don't blame you. The only thing I would say is that because of, as you, as I said before, it's we're one step below the pharmaceutical and like the financial regulation. So they're more regular than us, but then right down there is us. So this government mess, I mean, just the TSA alone, the amount of regulations and things that they have added that just make flying just unbearable. Hell. Yeah, as it is. I mean, I, you know, I listened to stories before, you know, you, you know, I think it was the one captain was telling me in 73, you would pull up, it's at the gate, there's no security, you'd walk on, you take, you know, and then there's an argument to say, okay, maybe there should be a metal detector, there's certain things that you'd want to do. But I mean, you, you, it was just, it was a night and day difference of flying was a luxury, it was a really a nice experience. And, right. um, you know, in my opinion, it's, yeah, it's government regulations, they're the ones who've killed this, this industry and made it just, you know, you're, you're barely, it's, it's crony, cronyism at the best, at the best oh, you can. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to open, Clint, if you had a billion dollars right now, and you just want to start an airline, you can't just go do it and start you know you start flying your planes even if you bought all the equipment and did everything you have to buy slots so a lot of times i don't know if you know this but there's slots that have to get traded out so if like you know delta wants to trade a slot for this they'll trade you know uh, jfk to brussels and they'll trade you know american for miami to jfk for one more slot so it's so unbelievably you know overregulated. i just saw i just saw just yesterday it was i believe it was uh spirit that got Mm -hmm. every every slot at uh, at JFK or or whatever, and I was like, "That's weird," you know. I like like all the other competitors don't get any of them. Like Spirit got all twelve. It was just, I don't know. I don't understand how the shit works. Do you do you have any <laughs> understanding as to why they would give them all to one airline? That seems weird to me. Uh, see, I, I don't know that specific deal. Typically, you trade something for something. So okay. I don't know if they they traded for something else or they you know had slots open that they they bid on but all i know is it's it's a bureaucratic nightmare for it to to go about no no kidding yeah every t- and uh, on top of that every time i go fly i have to get a prostate exam it fucking blows man i, I <laughs> <laughs> i'm not even 40 yet i'm not supposed to have to do that uh yeah anyways thank thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us as to this disastrous uh yeah. industry right now i obviously you know i appreciate what you guys do and i and i hope i hope you get treated better i hope you get a pay raise you, you, yeah. you certainly <laughs> ought to and i and i hope that they they find ways to hire more of you guys because uh, as it stands today, I am I am trying my best to avoid flying. But with my career, I don't really have a, that option. So I need you guys to do better. Uh, so I, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm rooting for you. Uh, yeah, anyways, absolutely. Go, go ahead and tell people where they can follow you if you'd like. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, I think you follow me on Twitter. There's just talk liberty on, uh, on Twitter is really all I have. And so, you know, I used to do that uh, stream with Eric July. I don't really do the podcast anymore. So I would just like to say hats off to you and congrats on uh, your growing success there. I know oh, firsthand how, how hard that is to, to do a podcast and people just think it's, Oh, hit the mic record. It is so much work. So uh, yeah, congratulations sure. on that. And, uh, but yeah, I'll keep you guys updated as things go along. You know, maybe another year I'll give you an update. I think that I do think things hopefully will get better as long as we keep pushing back on this agenda and this reset thing, because yeah. uh, as this comes along, I think things will work themselves out. So I don't want to be too doom and gloom. I think things will get better eventually, but we're going to have to go through some cleansing first, in my opinion. So, but next time in Miami, I'll be sure to look you up and we'll go go have a beer. So yeah, it sounds good, man. And and uh, next time you're you're texting Eric. 
nudge him. I've he uh, he agreed to come on months ago. Uh, I've been emailing back and forth with him, but he has not confirmed. So if you could just give him a little elbow. Oh for my me. gosh, yeah, I'll, I'll text him right <laughs> now. He he owes me one. I gave him. I hooked him up on the flight, so he owes me one. So uh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, brother. I, I was kidding, by the way. Uh, yeah. But thank you, thank thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time. We're out. Okay. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go. The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feppening. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky Smooth Tom was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic and rip a 59 Miles to ratio that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping and rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this don't get treated like a hoe